really, really nice. And I want to thank Ariana Estoke for her work and making this happen. Really uh, and Rabbi Rodich for his encouragement as well. And we've had uh, wonderful learning and speakers. And tonight, uh, we wanted to invite our Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, who teaches uh, in so many different ways, uh, in groups, speaking all over the country, in synagogues. He's the exciting speaker people bring in. He teaches one-on-one -on -one here in the synagogue. He's on Saturday morning. Uh, he's raised up rabbis and his family. Uh, and he's been an influence on so many. And the fact that we get to have him teach here at, well, as well at Kaishan Emanuel is, is such a, a brachat, such a blessing for us. Uh, if you look at the cover of his uh, book that he's going to talk about tonight, he's the author of Eyes Remade for Wonder, uh, Honey from the Rock, I'm God, You're Not, <laughs> uh, the Book of Letters. And so many of us have his books on our shelves. Uh, books that were written to help revive a deep interest in Judaism that people had forgotten. You know, my mommy teaches about, uh, about seeing a breastplate that's not clean. It's full of dross. It's, it's, it's dark and dirty. You want to throw it away. But he says that if you, if you brush it back a little bit, you see that it's, it's made of gold. But it's something amazing. Rabbi Kushner is the kind of teacher that helps us to brush it back and see the treasures and the wonders of Judaism that we need to make alive for our, our lives in the 21st century. Uh, I don't think I'd be the kind of rabbi I am today with the interest I have if I've not heard some of his lectures. I'm so glad that you'll get to hear him tonight. We welcome Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. Same uh, balagola, if your Yiddish isn't up to snuff, I'm literally a master of the wheels, a, a wagon driver. It, it does not connote a person with many advanced degrees. He's a balagola, a truck driver, a teamster. And uh, they've been on the road together, the Holy Magid and the balagola, for decades. And they're riding along, the Balagol is driving the horses, and the Magid is sitting in the, in the coach in the back. And as they're going along, one day the Balagol leans over, he says to the, to the Magid, he says, you know, we've been on the road together for 20 years. The Magid nods, yeah. He says, 
you know, you've only got seven speeches. Is that right? Yeah, he says, I, I've heard them so many times, I've got them memorized. He says, not only that, but there are only 13 questions that can be asked of each one of the seven. I have those memorized, and I have the answers memorized. The, the, he's sort of pumping himself up. The, the only difference between the two of us is that when we get to the next town, they are going to fawn all over you. They're going to treat you like royalty. They'll put you up at the inn. You'll sleep on a feather, a feather mattress. You'll, you'll have a magnificent meal. You'll be, a, you'll be a prince. It'll be wonderful. And I, who know all the speeches and all the questions, all the 13 questions, the 13 answers, I, I sleep in the stable with the horses. Well, the, the Magid was a, as the kids say, he could, was a sensitive man. He could figure out what was coming down here. And he says, I tell you what. He says, before we get to the next town, just before we go over the last hill, I'll get out of the carriage, and you'll get out of the carriage. I'll take off my hat. You'll take off your hat. You'll put on my hat. I'll put on your hat. And I'll get back in your seat, and you'll get back in my seat, and we'll get to the next town, and you can give whichever of the lectures you want, and dinner is on me. Enjoy yourself. So they, they get to the next town, and the Balagola, disguised as the holy storyteller, gets up, gives speech number three, and then the questions come. Question number five. They don't come in order. Question number five, question number two, question number 11, question number 94. He says, oh, well, the answer to that question is so simple that my Balagola, my wagon driver, said, Uh, <clears throat> uh, Jonathan uh, didn't, didn't mention it, there's no reason he would have, but um, for about, well, for exactly 29 and a half years, I was the rabbi of my uh, own congregation in suburban Boston. For those Bostonians, it was in Sudbury, the place of Longfellow's Wayside Inn. And, um, we had in the, in the congregation, we had a preschool, and in the fine print of my rabbi's contract was a line that said, I had to do guest appearances with the preschool. Well, that's a reasonable thing to do. I mean, uh, four-year-olds are, are not a challenging group to teach, but I, I would, I'm just conscientious. My grandfather was German. I would make a little lesson plan, the whole thing. And... Uh, they wanted me to come in and talk to the little people, heir of Rosh Hashanah, about Yantif and what was going to happen. Uh, and I figured, you know what we'll do is we'll bring the, the little people into the sanctuary. We had one of those multi-purpose sanctuaries. It could double as a social hall, it could double as a sanctuary, etc. And I figured that uh, I would let them see how the room had been reconfigured with chairs all over the place. and how we would accommodate all the Jews who felt a compelling need to be in the same room at the same time. And then, like a lot of suburban synagogues, it had, uh, it, it, instead of a, uh, an ark like we have, there was a, a curtain. And you pulled the, the drapes in a curtain, and then you opened the doors, and there was the Torah. And I figured that what I would do, kind of to end the lesson, is I would uh, go to the ark, I'd open a curtain, and 
take out a Torah and we put chairs around the reader's desk and uh, let the little people see the Torah and if their hands were clean, they could pet the white part of the parchment. It kind of feels like a peach. It's, it's what we educators call an affective lesson. And um, I'm talking, you know, and, and I see the teacher in the back and uh, she's going like this. It's, it's an old Talmudic gesture. <laughs> it means your, your time is about up, bucko. So I didn't want to run through taking out the Torah. It's a true story. I'm not making up a word of this. And, and uh, I said, I tell you what, boys and girls, the next time we get together, we're going to come back in this room and I'm going to open that curtain up there and show you what's behind something very special. Blah, blah, blah. The kids like little ducklings say, Shalom, Rabbi, and follow the teacher back to the class. Next morning, the preschool teacher shows up in my office with the following story. Apparently, the, the preceding day's hastily concluded lesson has occasioned a fierce debate among the little people as to what is behind the curtain. They didn't know. True. And the following four answers were given, which I respectfully submit may exhaust all the options available to someone on any kind of serious Jewish spiritual search. One kid, obviously destined to become a professor of nihilistic philosophy at a great university, opined that behind that curtain would be absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's a theological position. You know, some, of you, some of you may have flirted with it. <clears throat> Another kid, less imaginative and more traditional, but said, no, I think there's going to be a Jewish holy thing in there. Are you? Third kid, obviously a devotee of American consumerist daytime television subculture, guessed that behind that curtain was a brand new car. <laughs> and, and the fourth kid, and that's the whole reason for the story, said, no, you're, you're all wrong. Next week when that rabbi man comes and opens that curtain, behind it there would be a giant mirror from a four-year-old. Somehow, that little soul knew that when you open the Torah, you don't see something else, you see yourself. You discover something about yourself. It is the operative symbol in Judaism. What you've been doing here for the past, how many, six weeks, four, whatever it was, you've been studying this SPARK program, really is just all a fluffed up way of getting you to look in the mirror. It's all nothing more than a more elaborate, sophisticated, clever, subtle way of getting you to see yourself in the words of a sacred text. It turns out that there are uh, layers and layers of meaning in the biblical text. That won't come as a surprise. And the holier the verse, the more layers of meaning there are. And as a much younger rabbi, I became fascinated with one particular verse, and that's what I'd like to work on with you tonight. I'd like to drill down into it a little bit more than you might be used to doing. And I'm going to submit to you from the get-go 
that it's going to explain to us the dimensions of Jewish spirituality. The verse comes from Genesis chapter 28, verse 16, when uh, after Jacob, our father, remember he has now, uh, first he tricked his brother out of the birthright with the old oatmeal trick, and then, uh, then he dressed up like a gorilla and stole the blessing from Esau, and now he's got to run away. And he goes off into what he thinks is a God-forsaken wilderness, lays down, and has, as you probably already know, one of the great dreams of Western culture. Remember the story? There's a, there's a ladder, angels going up and down on the ladder, and God appears somehow at the top of the ladder, and basically, I don't have a lot of time, says, don't worry about a thing, uncle. the deal is still on. That, that's the gist of the dream. Jacob wakes up the next morning, and he says, Genesis chapter 28, 16. Now, I'll assume you know no Hebrew, but it's not as much fun if we don't do it in Hebrew. <coughs> Jacob spoke in Hebrew. Uh, so he says, when he wakes up, Achain, coming back to it, Yeish, Adonai, Ba Makom Hazeh, Ve'anochi Lo Yadati. Translate. The official, usual translation is uh, Surely Yeish. The isness, there is God, Bamakom Hazer, in this place, the Anuchi, and I, lo, not Yadati, I knew. Surely the Lord was in his place, I didn't know. That's the, the official give or take a word or two translation. Um, let's unpack the verse. I'm going to respectfully submit that there are at least four ways to translate it. You gotta buy the book. <laughs> Great book. Get doubles, you can trade them with your friends. There, there are seven in the book. I'm just gonna do four tonight. Uh, Jacob may have meant all seven at once or other ones that we don't even know. The word achem is a very slippery word. It only appears four times in the whole talk. And nobody's sure what it means. I, I'm pretty sure, though, that if I were Jacob and I woke up after that dream and I said, Achim, I wouldn't mean surely. <laughs> That's not what you say after a big dream, or indeed, or... I think a, a, better, a better translation would just be, whoa! <laughs> whoa! Uh, God is in this place, the and I, not, I knew, you'll notice that Hebrew syntax and grammar is a little clumsy, 
And the rabbis love that because it gives them a little bit more field position and ability to maneuver. Literally what it says is, whoa, God was here. In English, a better translation would be, and me, not that, and me, I didn't know. But what you want to remember is this anochi here is redundant. Jacob could have said identical meaning, well, God was here, voloyadati, and I didn't know it. But the Hebrew doesn't say that. And we get those truths since God gave the Torah, and God don't make mistakes when there's a... Whenever there's something that seems the slightest bit redundant or odd, it's a, it's a hint at something else. And we'll come back and pay attention to that in a few minutes. All you need to know is there's an I here, and the Hebrew verb yadati is I knew. Every Hebrew verb contains the subject anyway, so that the anuchi, I, first person pronoun, we don't need it. Everybody follow that? I did it today? Okay. So, the first way that we could translate Genesis 28:16, we'll start with the simplest one first, comes from Rashi, the great commentator, without whose questions and observations a lot of the Torah wouldn't be available to us. Rashi says what it, Jacob meant when he said that was, huh, if I'd known God was going to be here, I wouldn't have gone to sleep. Like, uh, what is it, the phrase is OTL, out, she's out, out to lunch? Like, you may have had that sensation where you're, 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 you're with someone you love and they say, that was incredible, and you say, oh, what? I, 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 I was gone, I, I, I missed that, I wasn't paying, t t walk me through that again. I mean, some of us have bruised ribs from being woken up against our will sometimes or fired back into what's going on. Um, tell you a story. I had a friend in Boston who was in a psychoanalysis and his analyst's office, he says, was across the street from a four-story red brick building in, in Brookline uh, that was a city psychiatric hospital. It was called by everyone Mass Mental Health. And uh, my friend says is that he would walk in front of the hospital every day, back and forth to his car for his 50-minute hour with his analyst. And he says, after a couple of years, one day, he says, I was walking in front of the hospital, and I heard from the fourth floor a gashrai, a scream that was so painful. He says, I, I, I couldn't get it out of my ears. I couldn't get it out of... He shows up the next day and he says to his therapist, I gotta tell you about this scream. The analyst says, you mean from the fourth floor? And he says, yeah. He, to which he said, the analyst said, there's a ward there where they keep most of the screamers. My friend reported to me that from that day on, when he walked in front of the hospital, now he could hear the screams. You hear what you're listening for. You see what, if you were a carpet salesman, what would you notice now? If you were a lighting designer, an architect, pick whatever you like. You notice what is important to you. Let me give you a little, if I may as a rabbi, I can get away with it, yeah? What do you notice? 
That's what you notice? That's it? You're willing to settle for that? Something on TV? A brand new car? Whatever? Maybe there's something else that you meant to pay closer attention to and got sidetracked. Like Jacob, maybe you just got into sleeping through it and missing the important stuff that was coming down. A similar idea is recorded in Exodus Rabbah. Uh, the guys, are, they're, they're recorded by name, Ruvain and Shimon. And uh, they were at the crossing of the Red Sea. According to our tradition, the splitting of the Red Sea was the biggest miracle there ever was. And not only that, but a common manservant or maidservant who was there saw more. When the sea was split, we're getting ready for Pesach. You can use it at your Seder. Saw more than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel combined. I don't have to tell this room full of people. That's big time miracle city. But according to Exodus Rabbah, two guys, Ruvain and Shimon, filed a minority report. Yes, it was true that they could walk across the bottom of the Red Sea, the waters had retreated, but the bottom was a little, um, yeah, muddy like a beach at low tide. And Ruvain's first words, according to the Midrash, as he stepped into the greatest miracle that there ever was were, Bluch. Shimon's were black. I'm translating from the Hebrew oi and voi. Oi, voi. It's, like it's muddy. It's the, the dead things in it, says Shimon. Reuben says, take a stick, clean it. You got a gob on your ankle there. It's mud. Mud, yuck. And, oh, yeah, I hate this. We had mud in Egypt. We got mud here. Reuben and Shimon crouched and moaned and carped all the way across the bottom of the Red Sea. And when they got to the other side, they didn't know why everybody else was singing Micha Mocha. They walked right through it and never saw it. Is that true for us on occasion? Is that one of the great challenges with spiritual enlightenment and awakening? Same sort of a point can be made about Moses at the burning bush. The way I learned it growing up in Detroit was he said, there was a miracle that God did to get Moses' attention. Like a bush burn not consumed. You all know the, the story. Uh, but I, I, I get to thinking, if I'm God, actually I, I think that a lot, <laughs> and I could do anything I want, like the old Stan Freeberg radio commercials. I could have the Royal Canadian Air Force fly over a 300-pound maraschino cherry, drop it right in. That would get his attention. Would I have a bush catch on fire and not get burned up? This is not a high-level miracle. I mean, you could, you could probably buy it in an L.A. joke shop. Bush burn, not be consumed, life of the party, amaze your friends, 15 bucks. I mean, it's not a... It's a funny kind of, I'm trying to figure out why it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense that that's how God would get Moses' attention until I had this great epiphany. I, I was sitting by the fireplace uh, back in, in Boston, and in New England, people, people have fires in the fireplace, unlike the way we do it. They don't have them for effect. 
They, they have a fire going in the fireplace to stay alive by. And uh, I, I'm sitting in, in the, the chair watching the fire burn some winter evening, and I have this great, this, do you know how long you have to watch even dry kindling wood burn before you'll know whether or not it's being consumed? Don't take my word for it. Try just five to seven minutes. Which means, here comes, there could be a miracle going on in your fireplace anytime you had a, but you wouldn't know it unless you watched it for five to seven minutes. Which leads me to the following deconstruction of the biblical narrative. I submit, ladies and gentlemen, it was not a miracle. It was a test. God wanted to see if he was dealing with somebody who could pay attention for five to seven minutes. And when he saw that Moses was doing that, he said, to him I would talk. The reason God doesn't talk to us is we have very short attention spans. Well, one, la one last image before we, we leave this first reading of the text. At the end of Parashah Mishpatim, we read it just uh, about a month ago. Um, Moses is finishing up the deal uh, at Sinai with God, and God then finally says to him, Moses, Alei Alei Hehera Veheye Sham. Alei Alei, come up to me, Hehera, towards the mountain, Veheye Sham, and, and be there. Menachem Mendel Morgan Stern of Katz, one of my favorite Rebbe's, he was probably crazy, uh, says, like Columbo, I, I, I don't get this. Could you walk me through that again? I mean, why would God tell Moses to climb up to him on the mountain and then tell him to be there? Where the hell would he be? <laughs> He's obviously there. Like, why, why did God say, come up to the mountain and also be there? He says, because he answers his own question, of course. He says, because there's a lot of people who spend their lives struggling to get up on a mountain. When they get up on a mountain, they're not there. They're yesterday, they're tomorrow, they're last year, they're next year, they're 10 years ago, they're 10 years from now. People don't know how to be where they are, just like Jacob. Whoa! If I'd known God could be here, and we know God could be anywhere, God going to be here, I wouldn't have gone to sleep. I wouldn't have been out to lunch. I would have paid attention to the right stuff. I would have learned how to focus and be fully present all of the time. Okay, end of number one, forget it. Whole new reading, got nothing to do with the reading I just gave you. These things don't build on one another, they're below one another. Second one comes from Dov Bear, the great Magid of Mezrich in the commentary Panim Yafot. And now we gotta go back to the Hebrew and we're gonna pay a little, we're gonna have a little bit more fun with this, uh, is this working right? Now I'm going to translate it in a different way. Whoa, God was in this place, says Dove Bear of Mesrich, because my eye, I did not know. Let me do it again. Whoa, God was really here. And the reason I realized that God was here is because I didn't know my eye for a while. The title of the book, which several copy editors commented on, is that uh, the, the way it translated is, 
because my I, capital I, lowercase I, I did not know. Something about God's ego, your ego, God's self, yourself, something to do with not being aware that it's you. Oh, I can explain it this way. I can explain it this way. Um, I'll teach you how to win at tennis, racquetball, squash, golf, anything that requires your opponent pick up an instrument, a, a racket, a club, whatever it is. And you have to do this so it's sort of nonchalant, of course. As you're walking out onto the court of the green, you say, but by, by the way, how do you hold your thumb on the racket? Oh, that's a dangerous thing. They will spend the rest of the game thinking about their thumb and how it's on the racket or on the club, and you'll score every point. Because what you will have done through trickery is awakened a self-reflection mechanism that we all have. It's not a bad thing. My wife calls it your inner Howard Cosell. And have this idea that there's somebody else in there with me. Um, my, my daughter, who's also a rabbi, says to me, Daddy, I'll teach you how to know you're dancing. You have to dance with so much of you that you don't know it's you who's dancing. Because the minute you know you're dancing, you're not dancing anymore. The minute you're aware that it's you who's there, that means that part of your consciousness is broken off and is now up here like Howard Cosell watching the rest of you. And now he's giving a lecture. And now he's walking out to the car. And now she's doing the taxes. And now he's changing the base. That part of stuff is going on in our brains all, all the time. Um, the Hasidim make a very similar point about this. The, uh, the disciples of Reb Chaim of Krasno, I think it would be a safe bet that the great-great-grandfather of Michael Krasny might have been in this crowd. Uh, and they're walking along, and Reb Chaim of Krasno is giving what you call like a peripatetic lecture. I think this, I think that, make this happen, so forth. And people are taking notes. And they come to the middle of the town. There's a little river running through the town. And they've strung a rope between two stout trees that spans the river. And there's a guy with a pole on, on the rope across the river. He's walking across the river with the pole, you know. And they watch for a minute, and they keep going. And all of a sudden, they realize, the Rebbe's not with him anymore. He's still back there watching the guy doing the tightrope. Well, it's kind of pastish that a Rebbe should be spending so much time, you know, watching like a circus stunt. They say, Rebbe, what's going on? He says, I can't get over it. They say, what? He says, that guy could not be thinking about the hundred guilders he's going to earn for this exercise. They say, why? He said, he'd fall and die. That guy cannot be thinking about the trick that he did, the trick that he's going to do. He can't even allow himself to think that it's him who's there doing it, because if he did, he would fall and die. For the most important and holy things in our lives, the part of us that normally tells the rest of us that it's thus who's there has got to be gone too. God was here because my eye 
my self-reflexive eye in the street. I didn't know that, and I was able to come closer to the divine. I, I can make the point in, uh, in one other way. Um, uh, my, my wife is not here. She's recovering from a hard day at the dentist. Um, she's going to make it, but it was a tough day. I said, stay home. Uh, it was her idea 40 years ago in Sudbury, Massachusetts, to unroll the Torah and Simcha's Torah. I believe we were the first people to do it. Now they do it in Jerusalem. Um, but what, the way we did it was the following. What we would do is, is that we didn't just unroll the Torah. As people came in, they were assigned uh, one of 54 seats. There are 54 Torah portions. And in each seat, there were three or four chairs. There were photocopies of each successive Torah portion. And people would go and sit down in their circle with the strangers. And uh, the ritual committee every year would come up with an idiot assignment that the people who were reading that Torah portion had to come up with. Like, think of a phrase in the Torah portion that you've been assigned that would make the best campaign slogan. Uh, one that went over very well, some of you may remember it, the line that won that year was, let them eat quail. <laughs> it's a political thing. Yeah, uh, th think of a phrase in the Torah portion that would make the best bumper sticker. The one that, that year was, all fat is the Lord's. A lot of people like that. You give you a level, a sense of the level of religious sophistication that's going on. Then, then after everybody had come up with their bumper sticker or their campaign slogan or whatever they came up for that year it was, we'd fold up the chairs. Then we'd unroll the Torah, but people had to stay in their same relative place in the huge circle. And then we'd walk around and we'd point to the Torah portion and the people behind it would give their bumper sticker or their slogan or whatever it was. It was a way for people to perhaps make up for one or two of the Torah portions they might have missed during the year. And this enabled them to do that. And then we would hire, every year we would hire the Klezmer Conservatory Yiddish Revival Jazz Band whose assignment was to play seven dances of increasing length and tempo. And uh, the ritual committee blew half its annual budget on champagne, and by the third dance, people were pretty well oiled, and it was a door. Our congregation in those days was also uh, one of the first congregations to reach out to Soviet Jewry. And we actually were one of the first communities in the States to bring refuseniks to the United States. And uh, we had several of them in our congregation. It was very powerful and beautiful. And I'm standing there watching my Reformed Jews drunk, dancing on Simcha's Torah. They're like Hasidim. I'm feeling kind of proud. And there's a guy next to me. You know, I'll, uh, I'll call him uh, uh, Mishka. Yeah, he's like, Say, Mishka, what do you think of our, our, our Simcha's Torah here? I'm kind of proud, you know. And Mishka says, oh, in a, a thick new English Russian, he says, well, it, it's very nice, Rabbi Kushner, but what you know, in Leningrad was better. <laughs> I'm a little concerned about this possibly ungrateful response. Now, what, what do you mean? Well, you know, by the way, that in uh, pre-Gorbachev Soviet Union, 
the way you, and I'm using this verb advisedly, the way you came out as a Jew in uh, Leningrad in those days was you would dance in front of the great synagogue in the Simchas Torah. But I'm a little curious. I say, tell me, Mishka, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, Rabbi Kushner, if you would dance there in front of the synagogue on Simchas Torah, you know, the, the KGB, the KGB, they would, uh, how do you say, take your picture. And then you would must assume that if they would take your picture, they would identify you. And then you would must assume if they would identify you, they would notify your employer. And then you would must assume if they would notify your employer, you would lose your job. So you see, Rabbi Kushner, to dance and dance like that different than to dance and dance like this. There are some dances you do, in the words of the old high school mixer, where you put your whole self in, especially and including the part of yourself that normally tells the rest of you, hey, isn't this neat, I'm here. Some things are so powerful and require so much of you, you no longer have the luxury of just sitting back and enjoying, enjoying the show. It says in Tractate Sota and in Tractate Arachin, a line that could come verbatim from an old Jimmy Stewart Western. And that the line, I'll just say it in Jimmy Stewart's, my version of his accent, God says to us, ain't room here in this here world enough for your ego and me. You pick. That's what we're confronted with. You want to have your ego? Mazel tov. Ain't no room for God anymore. You want to be aware of the presence of God? You got to silence that part of you. Um, when, when Karen was uh, uh, pregnant with Zach, our middle son, 44 years ago, we had just gone to sleep. It was uh, middle of the night, middle of the winter. Uh, snowing lightly. Went to bed around 11. Well, 12 o'clock, Karen wakes me up. I say, what's the matter, honey? She says, I, I know this is crazy. I would just so much love to have a, uh, oh, I know this is a, a, a chocolate, yeah, a chocolate bar with almonds. Well, I, I immediately know this is the strange craving of a pregnant woman. I think it's the least I can do. She's been schlepping this around for all this. I said, don't worry about a thing, baby. I'll take care of it. Before she can even make the request, I'm putting my Levi's on and my galoshes on and, and my sweatshirt and my snow parker with the hood and the goggles and the gloves and the muffler. And I go downstairs and it's been snowing all this time. It's about three inches of really wet, sloppy stuff. I get the car cleaned off. I get it started. And I think, where the hell am I going to find a chocolate bar with almonds in the middle of the night in Marlboro? And I said, but I'm a man on a mission. And I remember the Holiday Inn on 495. There's a candy machine. I figure the night clerk must see this bizarre scene. Man in pajamas skids to stop under the portico in a blizzard, comes running in, punches all his toll quarters into them, grabs all the Hershey's with almonds he can, waves, drives off into the blizzard. I go home, I give Karen a blizzard. She's fine, baby's fine. He lives in Berkeley now. They got a kid, it's beautiful. For about... 45 minutes, 
during a blizzard 44 years ago, I, Lawrence Kushner, who normally have a very well-developed ego, thank you very much, I do not have an ego. I am not doing what anybody with half an ego would want to do, which is stay in a warm bed during a blizzard. No, what am I? I'm driving around looking for a cave. Here is the crazy thing. It makes me happier to do what my lover wants than it does for me to do what I want. I have transcended myself and my ego as an act of love, and you better believe, ladies and gentlemen, that's the touchstone for every mitzvah you do as a Jew. God, you want me to do this? It's enough for me to know you want it. Seems crazy to me. I'll do whatever you say. Let me, let me just finish this second one. This was the longest one. Let me just finish it up with one lovely little teaching from Dov Bear of Mezrich. He says you can take the word, let's get a little bit of room here. He says, you can take the word for yourself, ani. Anochi is the older biblical form. It's like English, you and thou. Modern Hebrew says ani. Older Hebrew says anochi. You can take the letters for ani, for, for I, ani. Aleph, nun, yud, he says, and transpose them and make it aleph, yud, nun. Ani becomes ayin, or nothing. That's the trick. Or as I used to tell my rabbinic students, the bumper sticker is, it's your ego, stupid. All religions have as their primary touchstone goal and beginning. Let's just get the old ego under control and maybe nudge it out of the way every now and then. What was that one about the Zen monk? What did the Zen monk say to the hot dog vendor? You know that one? Make me one with everything. <laughs> There's another joke after that. He says, where's my change? And the hot dog vendor says, ah, change comes from within. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Go ahead. Oh, 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 I can't. So that story. You get to tell it. Go ahead. I thought you were reminding That's a true story. <clears throat> okay, third one. <clears throat> third, third way of reading it. I'm running out of time. I'll do it very quickly. It's a very simple, but you'll get it right away. It says that you could also read it this way. Wow, God was here, but by the name Anochi. I didn't know that. What Jacob learned was that God calls God's self Anochi. The first utterance of the ten at Sinai, God says, Anochi Adonai Elohecha, which we usually translate as, I am the Lord your God. But if you know any Hebrew, you know I could also translate it as, Anochi is the Lord your God. In this reading, God becomes the self of the universe, a self which tolerates and sustains each one of our individual selves. 
Okay, fourth reading, and then I promised Ariana I'd give her five more minutes for something at the end. Uh, the last reading, fourth reading, doesn't say Jacob didn't learn about waking up, paying attention. Jacob didn't learn about the self-reflection of self and getting rid of the self. Didn't learn that God's name is Anuchi, the self of the universe. No. Jacob had a mystical experience. I have to give you a 30-second refresher course on Jewish mysticism. If you're Jewish and you have a mystical experience, you will not see Jesus on the cross. If you do, call me or Singer 24-7. We're waiting to take your call. We'll talk you through it. We'll get you down. Nor will you behold Muhammad the prophet. Nope. What Jews behold is that wild, psychedelic vision that the prophet Ezekiel had. It's in the first chapter of the Bears' book. He saw what we call the Merkava chariot. And that Shimshon ben Pesach Astropoler says, that's what Jacob, he had, he had a mystical experience. The chariot, the Merkava, that Jacob beheld was carried by four creatures, Arbachayot. One was a Nesher, an eagle. And uh, one was a, an Aryeh, a lion. And in one version, it was an ox, but because an ox is a little bit too much like a golden calf, later on in Ezekiel, in the second version of the mystical experience, a karuv, or a cherub, is put in there. And the last creature is a, a person. Eagle, lion, cherub, person. And Shimshon ben Pesach Astropoler says, tell you what, guys, Jacob didn't learn about paying attention. Jacob didn't learn about the self-reflexive nature of self and consciousness. Jacob didn't learn a new name for God. Jacob had an experience of the Merkava. He had the ultimate mystical experience. But Jacob, until that vision, had thought that the chariot, the Merkava, was only born by three creatures by a, a lion, a cherub, and an eagle, an Aryeh, a Karuv, and a Nesher. You with me so far? Hang on, this is not too hard, you can do it. Those three, those were the three creatures he thought were there. As a matter of fact, he says, remember that funny word, Achein? Well, he says, we can take the Aleph of Achein and put it with the Aleph of Lion. And we can take the half of Achain and put it with the Karuv of Cherub and the Nun of Achain and put it with the Nun of Nesher or Eagle. Aryeh, Karuv, Nesher, Lion, Cherub, Eagle was in this place. Va'anochi, whoa, wait a minute. Aleph, Nun, half. But there's a fourth creature, a human being. What human being has as the first letter of his name? Yaakov. Jacob looks at the monogram on his shirt. Yud. Oh, 
He says, that's me. Look at your hands. Do it. Look at both your hands, everybody. You're looking at the hands of God. Thank you. 